Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, you are fresh back from an academic adventure. (laughs) Adventure is not exactly the word that I would use, but yes, I was conferencing. Tell us about it. How was it? Jennifer, how quickly do you want to be put to sleep? Let's just say that you know, I I went to the various ballrooms that I needed to go to and sat through the slideshows that I needed to sit through. Well, here's my question. So when you're at one of these events and you're, you know, palling around with your various, you know, academic friends and colleagues, do any of them ever ask you, Jack, how did you connect with somebody as cool as Jennifer? You'd be surprised, Jennifer, that nobody has asked that. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, actually, that um, the people who ask about the podcast are usually grad students. Um, and that that makes me feel so happy that we have this army of nerds out there. And uh, hey, don't be offended, nerds. I'm one of you, uh, as is Jennifer, uh, especially when she wears her roller skates into the studio. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's always fun to meet people who listen to the show. Well, while you've been off doing the academic equivalent of hobnobbing, I have been on yet another of my self-guided tours through <laughs> through education land. And, and recently, I have been boning up on all things classical education, which is a very old idea, and suddenly it's come roaring back with a vengeance. <laughs> yeah, although, you know, I think a part of me wants to question whether it's a very old idea. In some ways, it's a very new idea. Um, some of the things that they are talking about are, in fact, old. But this idea of hearkening back to an older era uh, is, in many ways, a new trick uh, that allows you to smuggle in a kind of Eurocentric um, white worldview into a public school classroom and claim the kind of bona fides of uh, classical antiquity. I think we all noted your correct pronunciation there. Oh, bona fides, excuse me. Let me <laughs> let me let me join the uh, the populace here, the hoi polloi. We did an episode a while back with friend of the show David Menifee Libby, and I think it's one. It was a conversation that shaped both of our thinking about this kind of treaty. Uh, between Republicans and Democrats around education and and how you know we can trace the origins of the charter school back to that. And we're going to be talking with journalist Catherine Joyce today. She's going to be telling us about classical charter schools. And I'm guessing that the early visionaries on the Democratic side of that treaty negotiating table probably did not anticipate that the innovative form that they were putting forward and signing off on was someday going to hold the contents of this sort of much older vision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And there's an irony there, which is that um, I think two groups that would not have signed on to the treaty, uh, you know, leftist progressives and the hard right, both were thinking about 
classical education uh, in the 1980s. So if you go back and you read some of this stuff, um, those on the right were talking about, you know, the Western canon, among other things. Those on the left were talking about, you know, the life of the mind. And that really wasn't the, the kind of middle ground that mainstream conservatives and neoliberal Democrats carved out when they were, um, you know, recognizing some common ground that they shared around this idea of, you know, an innovative space, charter schools um, that could, of course, be measured through uh, standardized test scores. Um, so, you know, I think it's interesting just to, to map out the terrain there and see how much it has shifted over time. Well, Jack, while I introduce the world to our guests and we get to know her, I want you to see if you can dig up an explainer on all things <laughs> classical education because we need to be brought up to speed and we need that to happen quickly. Well, Jennifer, I'm going to do this in uh, a way that honors classical antiquity, so I can't speak to the speed with which I'll be moving. I'm going to be consulting some papyrus scrolls that I've gained access to, um, and I think that uh, some of them will be in languages that I've been trained in. Uh, I've got some classicists on speed dial who I can consult, so, um, you know, I'll, I'll be ready. I am so excited about our special guest for this episode. Her name is Catherine Joyce. And when I say that I think she's one of the few writers out there who really understands the why behind the right's intense focus on education right now, I am not exaggerating. And that's because long before she started writing about education, Catherine was an investigative reporter covering the right. I connected with her last fall when she was working on a story about one of my favorite states, that would be Florida. Her piece for the New Republic is a must-read. It's called Republicans Don't Want to Reform Public Education, They Want to End It. And since then, Catherine, who is now an investigative reporter for Salon, has written one story after another, connecting the right's push for school privatization to a larger anti-democratic vision. We will be hearing much more about her findings in the course of this episode, but it was a specific story of hers that inspired this episode. In a three-part series for Salon, Catherine set out to understand an old education idea that's recently gotten a makeover, classical charter schools. And as she dug in, the same name came up again and again. Hillsdale College, it's a small private Christian college in Michigan. It's about 1,500 students. And yet it has this really far outsized influence on conservative politics in the U.S. It has a footprint in Washington, D.C., right on Capitol Hill. It partners with kind of heavyweight conservative action groups like the, the Heritage Foundation or the Federalist Society. And it's also got all of these other different quote-unquote, education centers around the U.S. You know, after you and I had spoken last fall, the, the next thing that kind of caught my, my interest was that Hillsdale, in December, set up this new academy for, I think, Science and Freedom is the name, that is basically an institute that has fellows who are big COVID-19 skeptics. So people who are either anti-vaccine or, or vaccine skeptical, at least, people who have strongly advocated against pandemic public safety measures from 2020 on 
through today. So that really kind of piqued my interest that why is this small liberal arts school so involved in this? Chances are, even if you haven't heard of this small liberal arts college in central Michigan, you felt its influence. Hillsdale and its leaders were very involved in the 1776 Commission. That was the body set up by former President Trump to counter the New York Times 1619 project. They also have a 1776 curriculum devoted to the idea, and I'm quoting here, that America is an exceptionally good country. But it was another lesser-known Hillsdale project that attracted Catherine's attention. And then they have this, this whole network of classical charter schools, these publicly funded schools that are teaching a curriculum that in a lot of ways is, is very similar to a private religious school. Hillsdale College itself prides itself on its classical education. So part of this is just this attention to, you know, the great books, this this Western canon from the Greeks on down. There are different colleges around the country that have a sort of great books, Western canon curriculum. Hillsdale has its version of that, which is very much also intertwined with ideas of kind of American exceptionalism. You know, Hillsdale is a religious college itself, so very much uh, entwined with really a Christian nationalist view of the United States. You know, the idea that the United States was, was founded on Christian principles, that it has this sort of divinely ordained role to play, and that American policy should be based on what they will, you know, at Hillsdale College, they'll say Christian principles straight out at their charter schools that are affiliated with the college. They'll say, quote unquote, Judeo-Christian principles, which is kind of its own can of worms. Catherine ended up writing a three-part series for Salon about Hillsdale's classical charter school project. It is fantastic. You should read it as soon as you're done listening to this episode. But while the idea of classical charters may be new, Catherine says that their mission isn't new at all. Because the the charter schools affiliated with Hillsdale College are publicly funded and are forbidden, in most cases, from having an overtly religious bent to them, they sort of adapt the really overt kind of Christian character of the classical education at Hillsdale College or, you know, some of the private Christian schools affiliated with it. And so they instead say that they're, they're trying to teach virtue. At Hillsdale's affiliated schools, private schools, maybe kids will learn to recite scripture and memorize various kind of religious texts. How this is translated at the charter schools is, you know, we have these lessons and this kind of overall focus on instilling virtue. But overwhelmingly, these are charter schools that end up embodying a really conservative Christian message, drawing from an overwhelmingly conservative Christian pool of, of students and families in some places. They are people who sometimes are dropping out of public schools to join. Sometimes they are very conservative Christian homeschoolers who never would have considered putting their kids in public schools. But now, now they're bringing these kids because this Hillsdale-affiliated education is one they can get behind. Hillsdale's classical charter schools are part of its Barney Charter School initiative. It started back in 2010 and has helped launch classical charters in 10 states. Then, back in January, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee announced during his State of the State address that he was inviting Hillsdale to launch up to 50-50 new classical charters in that state. Lee explained that the schools would feature Hillsdale's 1776 curriculum to foster what he described as, quote, informed patriotism, which 
caught the attention of some Tennessee journalists. One paper down there hired a historian to read through a solid portion of their 1776 curriculum. The curriculum itself is 2,400 pages. So I think they focused on the sections that concern civil rights. And just in those sections, there was a ton that was problematic, really significant misrepresentations of Martin Luther King Jr. and what he argued for, including, you know, this false claim that MLK never wanted to use the law to enact any policy changes to address segregation and racism. But really, he was just making this appeal to people's hearts. And then also this kind of global argument, you know, civil rights movement did its thing. They accomplished their job. They basically ended racism in the 60s. And everything that has followed since then is some sort of bastardization of of the ideals of the civil rights movement. So it's sort of a way to, to have your cake and eat it too, to get to claim this idea of MLK, even if it's kind of a misrepresentative one, and then cast anything that emerged from that movement in terms of how to actually put the ideals of the civil rights movement into practice, that that all is a step too far. And this is kind of perverting King's legacy. And it's not just civil rights that Hillsdale wants to correct the record on. The entire 20th century is up for re-examination through a conservative lens. This overall takeaway that progressivism whether we're talking about progressive education or the progressive era or progressivism as sort of like, you know, the modern kind of political position, all of this is anathema to the founding of the United States, either through the 1776 curriculum or just this broader curriculum that has been in use in Hillsdale's charter school network. A lot of it draws on texts from Hillsdale colleges So things that are written from a a very conservative viewpoint, one of the books that they use is titled New Deal or Raw Deal, How FDR's Economic Legacy Has Damaged America, written by a Hillsdale professor. Another Hillsdale professor's book, A Capitalist Manifesto, they seem to lean pretty heavily on books from William Bennett, Reagan's education secretary, variously focused on kind of a conservative idea of virtue or kind of American exceptionalism you know, this conservative interpretation. As Catherine makes clear in her reporting, the idea of classical education isn't new. In fact, as Jack is going to explain to us momentarily, it is a very old cause. But what is new, of course, are classical charter schools. The concept of classical education, says Catherine, is also being redefined in a narrower and more political way. I I wrote about this some in in the, the series on Hillsdale, part of Something that I'm looking at and and hope to be finishing soon is the idea of classical education has become this loaded term that I want to emphasize again that not all classical education seems to, to fit this picture, but it does seem like a conservative vision has at least kind of won the battle for for the brand. And so classical education seems to have become almost this kind of coded term for conservative politics. One thing that I'm trying to finish up is looking at a couple of different classical academies that are being set up at the level of higher education. And frankly, spooking some faculty there, is this some kind of underhanded way to set up conservative academies within our institutions? Okay, so Jack, there is obviously a particular vision of history that informs the now sort of 
the craze of the moment, classical education. But one thing that really surprised me was that their grievances seem to be aimed at, like, they go way back to the progressive era. And we hear a lot of complaints about the progressive era, but I'm seeing criticisms that are new to me. And that is that they date back to the progressive era, the start of the idea that you're going to use schools to train kids for careers. And like, I would imagine that a lot of people would be surprised that that would be their criticism, right? Like we're our answer would be, well, what, isn't that what schools are for? Aren't they for college and career readiness? So I'm just, I'm curious. I saw, you know, there's a new book coming out by um, a Fox News anchor named Pete Hegseth, and this is really its central point. And so I just wondered, what first of all, is this new to you? No, it's an old critique of schools, and there's an intentional blurring of a couple different quote-unquote progressive groups. So one of my mentors, David Tyack, was very clear when he wrote about the progressive era to distinguish pedagogical progressives, folks like John Dewey, who believed that school could be more engaging, that young people could learn by doing, that activity could be at the heart of every classroom, and that learning really didn't need to be uh, sitting around and engaging engaging in didactic instruction. Um, He distinguished pedagogical progressivism from what he called administrative progressivism. So administrative progressives were obsessed with efficiency. They had this patronizing view of the working class uh, and of students of color. They are the ones who ushered tracking in, and they're the ones who really were obsessed with this idea of creating a schooling that was, quote-unquote, more appropriate for, quote-unquote, less able students. First of all, note to self, never start a conversation with an education historian by asking, is this new? (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that just leapt out to me as I'm starting to take note of this criticism that grounds today's school culture wars in the progressive era is that like, man, that's like a long way to go back. (laughs) And it just, it feels so musty. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One of the things that struck me when reading a little bit of Hillsdale propaganda was a particular phrase that I wrote down. They were railing against, quote, fads frothing forth from schools of ed, where, you know, talk about musty, right? That that seemed like a really old-timey argument to make, right? It's, it's those darn ed schools to blame. But, you know, you've got to consider The argument that they're making is that actually schooling, and we can talk about this because schooling didn't exist 2,500 years ago, um, but their argument is essentially that schooling was a lot better a couple thousand years ago. And if that's the case, right, then something happened at some point that screwed things up. And so it actually doesn't matter how far back you go, right? You just have to locate a point in time where we derailed. And the point in time that they identify is one where a professional class of um, pedagogues emerged, right? So they are trying to say that what happened was that in the early to mid 20th century, a new class of bureaucrats emerged that seized power from you know the the populace and reoriented schools in a way that changed schooling for the worse. 
Okay, well, Jack, let's pause there just for a minute because I, I too, was really struck by the story of schooling that they're telling and how, how sort of weird it is. And I don't think many of our listeners have been pouring over classical education explainers like we have. So can you just set the scene for us? Like, what is the history that they're unspooling? Yeah, it reminds me a lot of the history that people try to tell when they claim to be engaging in the quote-unquote Socratic method. So this was something that fascinated me, I don't know, about 10 years ago. I just wanted to figure out, like, do we know what Socrates was doing uh, in, in ancient Greece? And as it turns out, we really don't. And uh, what passes for the Socratic method today is probably not at all like what the actual figure Socrates was engaged in. But there is a kind of claim to legitimacy that you can make by rooting whatever you're engaged in in this long historical tradition with, you know, a pretty great brand name associated with it. And that's what they're trying to do here. And so they sort of tick all the boxes with regard to elite white Western culture. But in telling that story, they miss some really important things. So for instance, they tell this story about how, you know, education kind of um, faded into the dark ages for a little while. And then it was resuscitated during the Renaissance. And that's sort of a peak. You know, education didn't, didn't fade. It didn't disappear. In fact, the place where, where math and the classics were really kept alive was the Arab world. Which that's is, the same as fading, Jack. Which, which according to them, right? It, uh, where it's, that's just really inconvenient for their story. That, you know, there's a lot of racial dog whistling happening here. A lot of talk about the West, a lot of talk about founding fathers, a lot of talk about Europe. And it really complicates your story if a part of the intellectual tradition that they claim to be inheriting is one that comes straight out of the Arab world. Um, you know, I want to know, are you going to teach people to read Arabic here? Um, and they're not, right? They're talking about a uh, Latin and Greek classical tradition. And there, I think there's also something really interesting to discuss, which is they borrow this language of mental exercise in this explainer. So another quote that I wrote down was rigorous mental training. And, and that's this real... It's, it's what we do to prepare for the pod. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I always do a few mental push-ups before we get started. Um, that That's this real claim that was made in the late 19th, early 20th century by advocates of a quote-unquote classical curriculum. People weren't that interested in having their kids learn Latin and Greek anymore. And the case that was being made for them is that this is the equivalent of mental exercise, that it, it will have transfer um, to the rest of your learning experience. That that proved to not be true, right? And they're leaning on that claim because the truth is, is that it isn't actually useful in the same way that it once was to learn these classical languages. Now they have a little dodge. They say, well, we're not going to teach people ancient Greek, but you do have to learn Latin. But I think it's important to think back here to, you know, why was Thomas Jefferson learning Latin and Greek? It was because that's the language that a lot of these books were written in. And so, you know, thinking through their lack of historical thinking here, I think is really interesting where they aren't considering why people were studying what they were studying and 
again, in the case of Latin and Greek, they were studying these languages so that they could have access to texts that had not been translated yet. It's a little bit like saying, you know, well, Thomas Jefferson used a slide rule, right? So we should have people use a slide rule. Let's bring the abacus back, right? That these outdated technologies um, were used for a particular reason, but that reason was not that they are are better or you know are more closely tied to critical thinking. One more observation here: uh, I can tell that you're getting a little tired of my um, my musings on the misuses of the past here, but this is a big one. Um, they basically completely dodged the fact that prior to a couple hundred years ago, what we consider to be a school did not really exist. Um, that, you know, if you're talking about somebody like Thomas Jefferson, as they do, um, you're not talking about somebody who went to a local public school and sat down and got a quote-unquote classical education. You're talking about somebody who worked with a tutor. Um, so this is really a different model. Uh, this this model that they claim to be inheriting, um, it's it's an elite model that you can track way back in time, but it isn't school. And so I think there are really fundamental questions about the degree to which they can claim to be picking up a tradition if what they're leaving on the side of the road is the expertise of a tutor working one-on-one -on -one or in a very small group with people all day long, right? That that that's who the teacher was, that's who the educator was. And um, there's this very new thing that they are picking up, and that's the model of schooling that we have seen in the United States for the past 150, 200 years. Back to Catherine Joyce. As I mentioned in my introduction, she's now an investigative reporter at Salon, and she's been writing one must-read piece after another, really helping readers make sense of the right's agenda. Take, for example, a recent speech given by Christopher Rufo at, where else? Hillsdale College. In this speech at Hillsdale, you know, which is a number of, of speeches at Hillsdale that have laid out kind of an explicit agenda to wage the culture wars through the public schools, Rufo was making this argument that the institutions, cultural institutions of all kinds, have been seized by the left and, you know, what we need to do is wage this all-out war on these institutions. So he was sort of fresh from leading this campaign against the Walt Disney Company. He was talking about education more broadly, kind of making these arguments that are akin to right-wing arguments about quote-unquote cultural Marxism, which frankly is just an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, but making this argument that there has been this long long effort to indoctrinate students with far left ideas. And so he's kind of saying, rather than try to go seize back these institutions themselves, we should just, we should just attack them. Catherine says that she isn't surprised that public education is such a preoccupation on the right these days. What's different is the way that parent anxiety is being used to fuel a political project. I think the right has done this really insidious, but so far it's proved fairly powerful thing of tying political complaints to the idea that your kids are being targeted physically or even sexually. Using this language like grooming to refer no longer to, you know, somebody is, is trying to manipulate your child into a place of such vulnerability that they could be sexually abused. 
implying like using that term instead to talk about how people are using not just concepts um, like teaching honestly about the United States racial history in a way that, you know, might anger somebody like Larry Arne, the, the president of Hillsdale College, but now also using that same language to target concepts like social emotional learning. There's just there's so much slippage kind of constantly going on from one term to the other critical race theory to just any sort of teaching of honest history and then social emotional learning gets kind of slipped into the concept of CRT that all of this is you know somehow indoctrinating your children into not just progressivism but Marxism that it's trying to turn your children into these communist automatons I mean they've just really kind of effectively used this, language of attack. The slipperiness of the language that's being used right now isn't the only change in how the right is waging these attacks on public education. They're also far more explicit about the ultimate goal of the school culture wars. I mean, I think one thing that's notable is that a lot of people on the right are just being really upfront about that intention. Chris Rufo at Hillsdale basically just came out and said that. If you, if you get people angry enough about things like CRT or, you know, how schools handle LGBTQ issues or, or just the pandemic, that is going to create these conditions, quote, for fundamental structural change. And he goes on to say, to get universal school choice, you really need to operate from a premise of universal public school distrust. He's just laying it out there. He's telling everybody in a publicly broadcast speech You know, if we can get everybody whipped up enough about these culture war issues, we can work our way towards getting universal public school choice, which is privatization. You know, he said that Richard Corcoran, the outgoing commissioner of education in Florida, he similarly was pretty blunt last year when he spoke at Hillsdale, making this argument that, you know, we've got to get across this Rubicon of getting so many kids out of the public schools that no matter what happens politically in the future, we will just have messed up the public school so badly that you won't ever be able to kind of rectify the problem. You can't can't put the genie back in the bottle. So I think far from kind of being conspiratorial and looking at this, they're being extremely blunt. Earlier this year, Catherine wrote a piece for the New Republic about what's being referred to as the new right or the post-liberal right. These are the folks who now reject liberalism with its emphasis on individual rights and are increasingly enthusiastic about using the power of the state to enforce a particular vision of morality. Are you still with me? Good. So Catherine headed to Orlando, Florida, to the National Conservatism Conference. She goes to session after session, and she ends up at a talk by a luminary of the cause, an Israeli intellectual named Yoram Hizoni, who lays out a vision for post-liberal America. And it starts with a very old cause, getting prayer back into the schools, something that I found surprising, and so did Catherine. And it was really surprising to me to see that his primary step on that path was proposing, can we all agree that we should be able to have Bible classes again in public schools, in in places where there's a Christian majority, shouldn't that majority be reflected 
in the public culture. So that's sort of the larger argument he was making, but he had this really concrete example of, yes, like allowing not just prayer in schools, but also explicit religious instruction. And I felt like you did. I felt like that is such an oddly specific thing to pin like all of the hopes of your movement around. And yet, I mean, I think ended up seeming pretty prescient because he does have this broader idea beyond that, which is that a majority should be able to set the culture and the terms of basically the public square wherever they're situated. Um, you know, and I think it's it's notable that he is, you know, making these arguments from Israel for one, but he's, you know, he is pitching these arguments to American conservatives by saying in places where you have Christian majorities, Christians should be able to dictate the policies and the culture. So what does the post-liberal vision look like in practice? If you listen to our recent episode with Jeff Charlotte about the connections between incendiary school board protests here and the global far right, you won't be surprised to hear that Hungary is a model. Or we could just head to Florida, which is looking increasingly illiberal. You know, they point to, as, as inspirations, countries like Hungary, where people might not be especially devout, but there is this at least surface level, religious justification for a lot of the different illiberal, so anti-liberal policies that the government has implemented from basically banning Muslim refugees or immigrants from the country to banning things they don't like in education, like gender studies, banning the ability of any minors to access LGBTQ materials. You know, a lot of things, frankly, that we are also starting to see be exemplified by somebody like Ron DeSantis in Florida. So these things do, I think, come back around and touch each other. You know, at, at, at some point, the use of education as as a battleground is something, you know, uh, Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, did exceedingly well. You know, there's some reporting that has just come out in the past week that reportedly members of Orban's government directly kind of inspired members of Florida's government in some of the actions that they've taken. So, you know, I think one way in which all of this stuff connects is, is this desire to have more explicit right-wing and often religious right ideology in public institutions, far less of a concern with, with individual liberty and freedom, and using a lot of that as a way to attack minorities. That was Catherine Joyce. She's an investigative reporter at Salon and just so smart. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss why the school culture wars are so lopsided. And we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint, content. That's all I'm going to say. If this intrigues you and you'd like to access our exclusive reading list, which is chock full of Catherine Joyce's writings, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a subscriber. So, Jack, I don't think it will come as a surprise to anyone that I was not classically educated, but <laughs> my school mascot was the Springfield Senators. Oh, so wow. that, I feel like that, I get a little bit of classical cred. Yeah, So absolutely. one thing I've been thinking about a lot, I have a secret passion for these new right podcasts. I'm fascinated by this worldview, and they are all about what they call like the trad, 
lifestyle, right? Like Catholicism is coming back. And in some ways, I think there are real parallels to what we've been talking about in this episode, that in a lot of ways, if you look back at the recent history of education policy, there's no talk about content at all, right? Like, I can't remember, you know, like Arnie Duncan never talked about content. It was always about the structure of schools and test scores and and college and career readiness. And so in some ways I feel like the right is now like I can see the appeal for coming in with this larger vision of what schools can do as ahistorical as it may be. And I feel like the the Democrats or really, you know, public education advocates more broadly don't have a good response to that because, you know, we haven't been doing those those mental exercises. Like we don't, you know, like what is our, what is our content vision of schools? Because you think back to like the Common Core debate and it was all about, you know, like processing texts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Neoliberalism has not done a lot of good uh, for left of center conversations about education and uh, one of the things that I think is really important for advocates of public education to take up is the question of what school can be if we think more expansively and more deeply about you know, what education means. And that is something that progressives, both in the progressive era as well as all the way through the 1980s and 90s, were really concerned with. I'm thinking, for instance, of the Coalition for Essential Schools, uh, led by Ted Sizer. Um, and, you know, they were very concerned with things that come out in this Hillsdale um, talking points memo, right? Learning for its own sake, um, the idea that you're not tracking young people, the idea that um, learning to do whatever you need to do on your job should not be the focus of education, a focus on the liberal arts and on the humanity of the young people in schools, um, the idea of an ethos. Now, I may not agree with the Hillsdale ethos, but, you know, Progressive educators talked quite a bit in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s about the need for a school to have a mission, a sense of purpose, um, a distinct identity. And if we want public schools to survive uh, in the next decade or two, then we can't simply defend the status quo, right? The status quo is a little bit difficult to defend. Um, but if we can say, no, it's the principles of public education that we really stand by, and it's the practice that we want to uh, improve on, right, that we want to reform. That's such a good point, Jack, because I think one of the reasons that the school culture wars feel so lopsided right now is that, you know, on the one hand, you have the right being able to paint this vivid picture of what it is that schools are doing, that basically education, schools of education, our favorite enemy decade after decade after decade are training up these culture warriors, and that's really the purpose of school. And so they're, you know, like, and they're able to draw on enough real life examples that that this 
this picture is convincing to a lot of people. But I think the larger problem is that there's no clapback to that, right? Because the there's no we have no real ability to articulate well what is what is the purpose of school? Because the one that we settled on turns out to be really kind of desiccated and unpopular. Yeah, what conservatives did here, which is so effective, is they flipped the table and took the old progressive argument, right, which is that school sucks. Um, that's what progressives said across most of the 20th century, right, that school sucks and it doesn't have to. So let's do all these things that we think will make school more engaging, more relevant, more equitable, more fair, and generally just more effective. And it was conservatives who were saying, no, things don't need to change. This more or less works the way it's supposed to, right? If you flip the tables and say, no, 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 we're going to take this argument. We're the ones who are going to talk about change. Then the left is in this difficult position where either they also pile on, right, and make these arguments against schools at a time when that could actually be politically devastating, right, because that creates a consensus on both the left and the right that schools aren't working. And that really threatens to open a policy window for radical change, change of the sort that I think we should be really worried about. But if they're then taking the other side and saying, no, 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 actually, we want to defend these institutions, then there's not a whole lot of room for them to make the same kinds of claims about what schools should be that they have historically made, right? They're back on their heels saying, no, 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 let's keep schools, when in fact we know that, you know, for most of the day, most kids in the country are like, you know, a little bored, well, Jack, I thought that as a special treat for you this episode, I would pick a topic for our In the Weed segment for our Patreon subscribers that I know will absolutely thrill you. <laughs> this feels like a trick, but go on. No, it's really not a trick. So the more I read about what's happening, the more puzzled I am about sort of like, well, whatever happened to content? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so, and when, you know, like I know a little bit, like I recognize the name Edie Hirsch. I know that there's a thing, cultural literacy, <sighs> but I want you for this in the weeds, I want you to give us a crash course in the, like what were really like the earlier school wars. Does that mm. sound good? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I love to teach. Let's do this. <laughs> we did get just get a new Patreon subscriber who said he was signing up for just for this purpose that he wanted he wanted to attend Jack Schneider's micro school. <laughs> if if you want to be brought up to speed quickly, Jack, quickly on the content wars, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast. You'll see a list of the extras we do that accompany each episode, like putting together a reading list. This one will be particularly content rich. And you get to join us in the weeds where one or both of us hold forth. Today, it's going to be Jack talking about cultural literacy, etc. Yeah, and if you want to upgrade from Patreon and join the Champagne Seminar with me, 
um, then that's a $100 monthly contribution to either your local NPR station or your public library. Um, and you'll have access to all sorts of uh, pedagogical treats like discourses on the history of mental push-ups. Um, so if that sounds good to you, just go to champagneseminar.com. But they're all in Latin and Greek, right? And if you don't speak Latin and Greek, uh, then there are still other ways to support the show. Um, we always like seeing when you tag the show and uh, tweet about it. So at Have You Heard Pod, um, please make sure that you are a subscriber to make sure that you get the latest episode in your feed. We're on all of the channels there. Uh, and uh, we've still got a book out, Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. It's an audio book. We volunteered to read it. You won't hear our sonorous and mellifluous voices. Uh, you'll instead hear a lady who sounds like she's on NPR, but that, that, that actually does the trick for me. Uh, so yeah, I think that's all I got. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 